Hello, and welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Alexa Tellett, and today I'm recording without my usual co-host, Yoel Inbar. I will, however, be joined by a special guest, Jenny Gutzel, a social psychologist and neuroscientist at Brandeis University. Welcome, Jenny. Hi, Alexa. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so glad to have you. (laughs) So I was thinking about this recently, Jenny, and I think that um, we have known each other now for 16 years. Um, and not just, not just that, but I was thinking about when we likely would have met. So we met when we first started in um, Mickey Inslick's lab, right. obviously a familiar name to people who listen to the podcast. Um, and I was like, maybe that could have been right around this day or like this date in the year, oh, yeah. right? Because we would have been starting like just at the beginning <laughs> of the semester. So maybe this is our 16th anniversary what a way to celebrate our (laughs) anniversary yeah right (laughs) maybe not exactly what i would have pictured um before we sort of start getting into our topic for today um i wanted to ask you a question that we often ask um guests on the podcast which is um how did you sort of get to where you are today working at brandeis as a social neuroscientist I did not expect this question, although <laughs> I've been following your podcast for so long. <laughs> yeah, um, how I got here? Uh, well, um, I am um, I'm German, um, and uh, so I I was an undergraduate student um, at Konstanz University, which is in Germany, and I was studying psychology, and I wanted to go abroad. Um, and at the time, I thought. Um, you know, I was I was for sure going to become. I was training to become a um, neuropsychologist. I wanted to work in rehabilitation, um, and but just before going abroad, I did this internship uh, in a rehabilitation clinic, and it was the most boring thing. <laughs> it, was, it was so. <laughs> You know, I had to give these cognitive tests all the time, and it was just really not. And I took home the sad stories of the patients, and it was just not for me. Um, and I needed to earn some money, and I started working in a lab and did also there very boring tasks. Um, you know, I had to copy, like rearrange data, and I don't know, and all these kinds of things. But I was always looking forward to that, and I was working on the weekends and at night after a full work, do- work day, and I was like, I, I gotta, I gotta do. I think research is what I want to do, <laughs> mainly because I did not know anymore what I wanted to do after I wouldn't be a neuropsychologist. Uh, and then, so it turned out really well because I got to um, the University of Toronto for my exchange here. Um, and I said, okay, now let me really figure out if I want to do this research thing. So I kind of decided instead of what I wanted, was going to do is taking courses um, like the other people in my program in my exchange program, I was going to see if I could do some research. And so I contacted several um, faculty members and Mickey was all new um, and didn't have any grad students. So I think that's why he was like, yeah, let's, let's give that a shot. This German uh, exchange students who I don't even know if she's really a grad student or if she's just an undergrad. <laughs> and, and, and then we did, um, I loved it. I loved doing research. Um, I was really intrigued by Mickey's stereotype threat research. And um, and at the time he was like, oh, I'm doing this ego depletion kind of self, self-control self work that is going to lead to stereotype threat research. I 
are you interested? And I was like, yeah, if it needs to stay in touch with research. He totally pulled a bait and switch on both of us. <laughs> both of us joined his lab for his stereotype threat research. Neither <laughs> of us did that work. No, did not. <laughs> but I really just enjoyed the process and I really got into uh, self-control as well. And then um, he, yeah, he basically was like, oh, you can apply um, for the PhD program. So I did and also other programs and I ended up with Mickey's lab. Um, and I ended up studying, not stereotype threat, but I ended up studying empathy biases um, in intergroup perception, um, sort of like who we empathize with and who we don't empathize with. And in particular, I was focusing on, on race um, and ethnicity. And that's basically still what I do. I mean, I study empathy mainly. I kind of like sidetracked a little bit and study all sorts of things related to empathy. but. Um, yeah, so I, I was always going to go back to Europe. I was like, okay, I'll, I'll go do this PhD over there. Um, but then I ended up not really, I applied in, in Europe and United States and Canada. And um, I think we were really well trained to get a job in the United States or like in North America. <laughs> <laughs> I had yeah. no idea what I was doing <laughs> with these European positions. So, uh, I got got a good job, and so I took that job, and now I'm still here because I actually, um, yeah, enjoy my time. I'm glad that uh, someone carried the, on the social neuroscience torch in our <laughs> lab because I'm not sure if if I tried to run an EEG study now, I'm not sure how well it would <laughs> would go. <laughs> but I can always collaborate with you. So. You can always exactly. Yeah, I had to. I realized I I had to do so much running because I got. Um, I got, um, I'm also in the neuroscience department, so I, so I felt for, as an, to be, like, I felt like an imposter for the longest time, and I'm sort of now at a stage where I'm like, okay, you know, I know so, some things. So it's been like 10 years, and now you're like, okay, maybe I'm not an imposter. <laughs> yes, basically. <laughs> Inspiring words for the young scholars out there. <laughs> Okay, wait, we, um, we need to talk about what we're drinking. What oh, are you yeah. drinking today? Well, um, I, my first, so I have two different beers, and I'm not going to talk about the second one yet. I brought one that I, it's, it's one of my favorites, um, so I know it already. Um, it's called Hop Hop and Away, and it's from Aeronaut Brewery, um, which is in Somerville, which is basically in Boston. It's oh, Boston, like really Washington. close to you. Yeah, really close. I used to live basically just around the corner, like next door almost to that brewery. Um, and it's the coolest place and they make really nice beer and you can already hear in the name Hop Hop and Away. There's a little bunny, in space bunny on on the um, on the can. It's a really cool oh, can. Oh, very nice. Um, very nice yes. And yeah, it's very hoppy. So I do love, uh, it's a session IPA. Um, so. And you're doing you're drinking this in an, an unconventional manner. You're drinking it at room temperature. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the logistics didn't work out for me, <laughs> and I tried to cool it down in the freezer. <laughs> and it came out of, out of my car trunk, which I had forgotten in there, and oh, so man. it was really it was it was kind of almost hot. Um, like not like higher than room temperature. Yeah, it was like a <laughs> coffee that you had to sit a little bit for like 15 minutes oh my on, God, that's so on gross. your desk. So I put it in the freezer and I took it out and I think now it's room temperature. So okay, you know, at least I Very know good. that it can be good when it's cold. <laughs> yeah, you you won't um, tarnish their reputation 
um, based on what it tastes like warm. <laughs> yeah, okay. what are you drinking? I am drinking the Free Wave Hazy IPA from Athletic Brewing Company. Mm-hmm. All right, you ready to open these? Yes. Oh my god, it's so foamy. <laughs> <laughs> How is it? Warm, but it's still <laughs> it's still good. It's um, it's really it's hoppy, and it's also kind of citrusy and um, yeah, just like a, I like them. All right, mine is very similar except cold, so probably <laughs> quite a bit better. <laughs> um. Okay, well, probably now is a good time to talk about uh, our somewhat unusual hosting situation. Mm -hmm. Um, So for today's episode, I wanted to talk about um, Yoel's recent experience interviewing for a job at UCLA. And actually, maybe more accurately, I want to talk about some bigger issues that were raised um, in discussions of those events and some of the responses to those events. Um, And so I wrote down some of my thoughts about this. Um, and I'll post that on our website. Um, but I also, maybe as a podcast host, feel like sometimes conversations can do things that written things can't. Um, so I did want to have a conversation about this. Um, and Yoel and I discussed this, and he decided that he didn't want to be on this episode. Um, but he was supportive of me having this discussion with another co-host. Um, and to me, you seemed... Uh, like the natural choice, given that we've talked a lot about this and also about related topics over the years. Um, and whenever I talk to you, I feel like I see things more clearly. So, so maybe I'll have that experience today and maybe our listeners will have that experience. Um, so yeah, we, I think we probably have to start with some context. Um, so I'll start by uh, giving sort of a brief summary of um, what happened at UCLA. Um, and you can hear more about that um, from Yoel's perspective on uh, the episode Free Yoel um, on Very Bad Wizards, and we can put a link to that. So you can hear Yoel's account of what happened. You don't have to just sort of um, take my summary of it. Um, but generally, uh, what happened was that uh, Yoel went to interview at UCLA um, in a partner hire scenario. Um, and when he went to the interview, he had meetings with um, various people, including, I think, a diversity committee and also the graduate students. Um, and at some point in this process, uh, the graduate students wrote, uh, wrote a petition um, requesting that UL not be hired. Um, and part of this request was based on content from our podcast. So uh, some of that was from an episode, or at least the specific examples that they gave. Um, Some of that was from uh, episodes before I was on the podcast, um, but some of it was also from an episode when I was on the podcast, Um, in particular talking about things like diversity statements. Um, And so uh, this letter um, argued that Yoel's views about diversity statements uh, meant that he wasn't a good fit for UCLA. Um, In the end, Yoel didn't get the offer. um, And I guess we can't know for sure uh, how exactly this decision was made. Um, But it's possible that this letter and um, the discussion surrounding the letter played a role in that. 
after all of this happened, um, Yoel recorded this episode on Very Bad Wizards about what happened, um, and there was sort of a response to that. And um, I was wondering, Jenny, if you think you could give a sort of general broad strokes summary of like some of the responses um, to the Very Bad Wizards uh, episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I have to qualify this by saying that I'm not big on Twitter. You know, I have two tweets or something. Like this. <laughs> but I think I'm more on Twitter than you are, potentially. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sadly, neither of us will give a comprehensive summary of the Twitter response. Exactly. But I was looking for that, actually, because I at first, before I even learned about this on Twitter, I, I listened to the episode. And then I was really curious about what the reactions were. So I, I did do a quick sort of search on Twitter um, to, to find some responses. And, and you know, what's stood out to me, I mean, there were a lot of supportive um, responses for you all that I agreed with, um, you know, um, expressions of sympathy and, and a little bit of, you know, sort of like outrage about what he had to go through. Um, but then there were also these responses that were kind of really, I don't know, I, I felt like my hackles getting up a little bit <laughs> that, you know, the kind of the viewpoint diversity um, responses. So, you know, we shouldn't um, judge people. And then especially these kind of anti-DEI uh, effort statements um, that were basically saying we've gone too far. Um, in, not not in these words, um, but, mm -hmm. you know, basically suggesting that maybe the sort of like the left has has, you know, the diversity efforts have gone too far a little bit or um, and now there can't be any room for viewpoint diversity anymore. And we're doing job screenings where we're excluding all sorts of people um, and it's just gone too far. And, and what I also noticed and not, you know, not too many, but I saw and that was really worrisome, I think. Um, that these were not the responses that went in this direction were somewhere from academics and people who usually you know you would you would kind of know but then others were seemed to be more these kind of like people who look for these kind of things they were sort of like giving the conservative movement that is trying to suppress the DEI efforts ammunition um, you know, see this, it's happening to, to this professor, you know, can't say anything anymore, that kind of thing. And, and so that I thought was really unfortunate. And that was also what I was worried about when I was listening to the episode. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. The sense that I got from, from listening to the Very Bad Wizards episode, um, seeing some of the responses on Twitter. And then we should maybe also mention, um, and we'll, we'll provide links to all of this stuff, of course, the um, article that Matt Lieberman wrote where he went a little bit into sort of like the behind the scenes stuff that happened at UCLA. And he, um, he mentioned one thing that I think should be acknowledged, which was that uh, UCLA's policy suggests that they um, need to have a full faculty vote. And apparently they didn't have this. And this does feel like a violation of procedure that right. feels um, unfair. Um, so, but yeah, I generally would agree with the sort of um, description that you gave where at least one sort of dominant interpretation of these events um, seems to focus on UCLA, like taking DEI too far. And there's the sort of like 
um, expressions of fear that academia is going down this path where you can't say anything, you can never critique DEI um, initiatives, or you will be unhirable, or you'll be labeled a racist or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I have, a, I have a pretty big problem with that interpretation. So first of all, I think that interpretation is wrong. Um, and second of all, I think along the lines of what you're saying, I think it sort of provides fodder for this, um, this conservative movement that I find uh, really oppressive and, and I feel that very um, close to me where I am. Yeah, you um, must do this much more than I would, for example, you know, on the East Coast, but in Alabama, it's just... Yeah, I'm yeah. listening to the, just listening to NPR this morning, it was like talking about laws in Florida that are like preventing people from talking about um, being gay until grades, I, th I think um, some of these laws are like up until grade 12, um, and then there was this, these descriptions of these PragerU, like alternate educational um, videos um, where they talk about slavery and they like it's required that you talk about how um, how uh, slaves learned skills um, that would be useful for them in their day-to-day -day lives like like yeah. requiring you to put like a positive spin on slavery like I find it actually like terrifying right, right. Um, so anyways, what I, what I said was that um, there were sort of three responses to um, the events at UCLA that, that really rubbed me the wrong way. Um, and especially, I think, given my role on the podcast, I felt this sort of responsibility to talk about that and, um, and to point out that I, I don't like these as defenses of, of the podcast. Um, so one is one that you mentioned, which is that viewpoint diversity is somehow under attack, and this is evidence of, of academia's intolerance for any kind of dissenting views when it comes to DEI. Um, one is that um, podcast hosts shouldn't have to worry about what we say, so what we say on podcasts should be sacred, it shouldn't have any impact on professional outcomes for us. Um, and then one is uh, that the, the grad student petition was taken too seriously. So, so these are all responses that I disagree with and that I, um, and that I sort of took issue with and wrote a little bit about. Um, Jenny, you have read what I, <laughs> what I wrote. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess I'm curious first, maybe just what your general thoughts are. Yeah, yeah, just for, you know, as you summarize these three points, um, yeah, I definitely agree with those, um, even though I only pointed out in my own summary because that was really stuck out to me. And, and it's because of my personal uh, position in this. You know, I'm, I'm a black woman and uh, I study these things um, and I'm all, you know, pro-diversity. So this stood out to me. But another thing that also that you mentioned that also stood out to me was what you said, the grad student petition was taken too seriously. Um, and particularly these comments that kind of implied that they were just hapless pawns in this game of someone. And um, so definitely would love to talk about that too, too at some point because, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, well, these, these people are adults. They have, you know, a full university degree and they are really smart. Um, so why do we think that mm -hmm. they would just mindlessly sign a letter um, and and, and without, you know, I, of, of course there's pressure and everything, but when um, a bunch of academics signed 
the letter pro and con feeler people weren't like oh look at these professors like they don't know what they're doing um mm-hmm. you know and, mm-hmm. and some of these grad students will be professors in like one or two years but um yeah anyways so, but i i generally thought that your letter was really uh well put um <laughs> i enjoyed reading it uh, i i I think it reflected a lot that we, you and I had talked about before. Um, and I, it also made me curious a little bit about sort of like, I would sometimes be like, okay, uh, how exactly? And like, so I'm glad that I can ask you these questions. So you, you touch upon sort of like several arguments um, about viewpoints and, and how we consider viewpoints and whether we should consider viewpoints in the hiring process and that we do. So you're basically saying, um, we anyways consider all sorts of viewpoints all the time. We consider viewpoints about how to do science properly and how, you know, not to p-hack and how, um, how to mentor students and things like this. And these are all viewpoints as well. And so why shouldn't we so consider DEI viewpoints? And I wanted, I was curious, I wanted to hear your thoughts a little bit more about, you know, uh, when and in what way, uh, viewpoints relevant to the job of being a professor, you know, so and in particular, maybe also like sort of like DI aspect, because I, I would say that maybe there's even a differentiation that, as you mentioned in your letter, that some viewpoints might be more integral to that job. And I think DI viewpoints are, are that as well. Yeah, right. So, I mean, one, one reaction that I have is that um, I think when when people argue that these kinds of instances are evidence of a lack of viewpoint diversity or an attack on viewpoint diversity, um, that feels disingenuous to me because, as you said, it feels clear that we often consider people's views when we make decisions about hiring or promotion. Um, And I think that we do that at both a level of views that people express Um, And if you think about it, a lot of our work is expressing views. I mean, it's also summarizing data and analyzing data, but people are writing papers. Sometimes people are writing perspectives papers. Um, People are teaching classes. um, And yeah, some people are recording podcasts. And so a lot of these things are expressions of views. And I think that we are evaluated on the views that we express and also how well we express them and what we think the impact of those views will be. Um, so I think that's a big part of our job, and I think it's pretty—it's sort of disingenuous to say um, that that should be separated from the hiring process. I mean, it's one of the sort of biggest outputs that we have as academics. I think where people really get their hackles up about um, views being involved in the hiring process um, is when they think that those views are irrelevant to the job. Um, but they're being targeted because their views happen to put them in an unpopular camp mm-hmm. at the current political moment, right? So right. Um, I think when the, the people who are talking about viewpoint diversity complain about this, um, I think the argument goes something like, okay, um, sure, you should be able to um, select people based on views that are relevant to their job, um, but what about when people are expressing a view that's irrelevant to their job but marks them as a more conservative person? Um, that seems unfair. And I think the difficult question is deciding 
one of you really is relevant to somebody's job. Yeah, and that reminds me of Matt Lieberman's letter that you also linked to in, in your in your, what you wrote and that you're going to post. Um, and you know, in general, I, I thought you gave a really helpful background for the, how this went all went down. One thing that I kind of disagree with him was that he said, um, you know, a university's mission. He also cites the mission of UCLA as an example, and um, says, well, everyone can work. Not everyone works for to all towards all aspects of this mission of an institution. And I would say maybe also sort of like the goals of a department, right? So we all sort of like working together. Each one has their responsibility. Maybe there's this one person who gets the big grants and another one who's sort of really doing a lot of service and the other one is doing, you know, the DEI stuff or something like this. Uh Um, And I don't think that you can, I think there are certain views that are just um, different, um, you know, and, and so these are attitudes about how we're doing our science, um, you know, um, that we're transparent and things like this and, and careful and all those kind of things. But these are also, I think DEI is part of that because it's so, it's relevant to, I think, all aspects of the job. Um, and so if the mission of a university, for example, is to create knowledge that is relevant and important and we can learn something about humans and the world, you know, and how and, and better the world, then of course, you got to make sure that, that everyone has an equal chance to contribute to this body of work. Everyone feels free um, to express themselves in that regard. And that's just not true, um, you know, um, right now um, in our sort of white-centered academic world. Um, and so in order to, when you're teaching, you have to, you know, create a space where students feel um, like they can be themselves. Um, and when you're doing research, it will always affect your um, your perspective and, and the kinds of methods that you're using and the kind of questions that you're asking. And so the idea of, yeah, well, there's a lot of people, and it's always a lot of people. It's usually just like three people in a department or something like this who really actually work towards the goal of DEI. <laughs> and, um, and everyone else is just working for, towards the other goals. But the problem is when you're not working towards that goal, then, then you're... I don't think you can be neutral on these topics because you're there um, as a white person. So that's a statement in itself. Right, yeah, like um, I guess taking a sort of neutral position on DEI is is basically taking an anti-DEI position, I think, yeah. right? Because I guess the whole goal of DEI is to change the academic environment in pretty drastic ways, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you're sort of okay with the way that things are, you are inherently not not doing that right right Right. and i think if you believe that i don't know you know um then it's i think it's legitimate to to look for people who are actively doing work you know towards this goal um and that's fine you know we we, universities and, and departments should be able to set their own priorities in that regard um, and, and people sort of need to adjust and, um, and maybe do more in that direction then. Yeah, right. I kind of sometimes always wonder when, when people are talking about how um, anti-racism is basically political 
Um, mm -hmm. Does that mean that racism is political too? Is, can that be a political opinion that mm -hmm. we can actually have a debate about and um, you know, and then we can maybe the better the person who has the better arguments might win. I, I don't think so. I mean, yeah, right. you know, so so yeah, maybe there are stereotypes about you know how maybe people who are conservative would also be anti DEI efforts or be a little bit more racist or something like this. But first of all, I don't think that's always true. I mean, you know, I can envision a conservative who's not and. <laughs> and also, if you are, I'm sorry, you know, this is not a viable political opinion, in my opinion, because you're talking about your opinion and I'm talking about my existence. And so I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's something that's so frustrating to me is I, I can't th think of anything that doesn't get characterized as a political view. Everything is politicized. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like you say, then things things become permissible somehow because people say, okay, well, Democrats and Republicans on average disagree on this view, so therefore it's a political issue, so therefore it should be removed right. from all of these realms, right? It should be removed from hiring, it should be removed from what people talk about in the classroom because it's political, you're going to be indoctrinating people. Mm -hmm. And it's like, just because something is political, just because Democrats and Republicans have a different view on an issue does not mean that, like, one position isn't better than another <laughs> right. or that we can't talk about these things like yeah oh it's so frustrating yeah i agree i could go on and on <laughs> but <laughs> but i will not because there's other things that you wrote that i find interesting <laughs> um another thing that i found interesting and maybe i don't know what to move we might come back to this we have a whole another reading about this topic um <laughs> Um, one thing that you, you were talking about, you, uh, and I found that really interesting, like your personal sort of feelings about this, you know, you, you, you said this at the beginning of this podcast too, a little bit of how you feel a responsible, a responsibility to, to respond to these, um, objections and this discussion, discourse on Twitter and, and the like, um, and you're asking some questions, um, about sort of like you worrying about whether the podcast might have have had like a political identity in a way um mm -hmm. before you joined and i remember you and i talked about this actually when you were discerning mm -hmm. about whether you wanted to join or not um mm -hmm. and i remember at the time we were talking about how it could be really helpful to have someone like you who has maybe a slightly different perspective because that's also the seems seemed at least and I think that is, and correct me if you're wrong, kind of the premise of this podcast to some extent as well, right? Like that you want to also sometimes disagree. And I always find the episodes really interesting when the two of you do agree, disagree. Um, so, so I thought that, you know, so we talked about this and, but that was sort of like something very similar, whether you could actually bring in your own perspective enough when there is this established, maybe whatever identity, could you tell me a little bit more about this, like the specific political identity that you're thinking and sort of how you feel like it, it actually went so far? Yeah, I mean, when I joined the podcast, and I think I talked about this on the very first episode that I, um, that I co-hosted, um, I had the impression that, that Yoel and Mickey had sort of established an identity for the podcast that was something like um, 
maybe a gadfly to the um like the academic left I don't know if I'm using the word gadfly right what I mean is like people who are um pushing back against the far Mm -hmm. left in in academia so I felt nervous about that because I thought maybe there's like already an audience for the podcast or maybe the podcast is perceived in a certain way that doesn't align with my own values um but as you sort of mentioned I think where I saw potential was um the yeah the potential for I guess productive disagreement right so um I think what has happened on the podcast is that when Yoel and I do talk about these things we often disagree um and maybe that is useful um for for us to hear each other's perspectives and for other people to hear our perspectives um and also, I think we do different episodes than, than maybe Yoel would do with a different host. So I've done some episodes with Yoel that I feel really like proud of and excited about. Like we had Danielle McDuffie from my program come on. And um, yeah, we've done episodes on the criminal justice system mm, and yeah. mental illness and things like that. that um, and I mean, like Yoel is excited to talk about all of these things too. Um, but yeah, I also think, I mean, along the lines of what you said earlier, where you were like, okay, well, is now, is racism a political view? And does that mean that we can have a debate about it? And does that mean that like whoever is the um, more persuasive debater wins? Um, yeah, I think that some things are really up for debate and, and Yoel and I have a friendly debate, you know, vibe, I think. <laughs> and so maybe some of the, these topics are just like not fairly treated by conversations like that um you know or maybe i maybe i lose in debates with you all when i really should win (laughs) yeah i i don't i don't think i don't think so i think you do you hold your ground but (laughs) but one thing that you know that brings up the question are these friendly debates, you know, adequate to address the topics and and also, you know, when it really sort of like go is about people's real lives and sometimes sometimes you guys do have a stake in it and sometimes you don't. Um, mm-hmm. And so then it feels differently um, for people who might be listening um, that are just really affected by these things and you know it is it does feel sometimes i mean not necessarily on your podcast but uh, you know um having people and i'm sure you've experienced that too when people debate topics that are really close to your sense of self and your identity and your day-to-day life and people are just like throwing out and then having just a good time throwing out some arguments and and you're just like you don't even know you know and i mm-hmm. so i think um what what I find is that when people, when it slides into sort of like speculation about such topics, I think that there needs to be sort of like a care, an extra care taken. Yeah, there's like just so many, so many issues that you all and I do not have personal stakes in. And sometimes I think we're just not welcome to have those kinds of conversations. Yeah, but it's still important to, to have them, right? Like I do find there's value in it. There is like a certain arrogance in having a podcast. Right? Like, you, you're like, oh, people should hear what I have to say, you know? 
over what other people have to say. You know, I'm worth listening to. Um, and yeah, one other one other sort of reaction that I had to the reactions to the UCLA stuff was yeah, this idea that like podcasting should be protected in some way, or should we we should like be allowed to say whatever we want and. Um, yeah, I found that I found that frustrating too because it seems like podcasting in some ways is a a privilege. You know, you have this platform, and the accountability of having that platform, I think, should be acknowledged. So, you know, arguably, I think that it's really important for us to be really deliberate about what we say on the podcast and really considerate about what the impact of what we say could have. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think it's. Um, I think it's really 100% fine for people to take that into consideration when they, you know, make professional decisions about us. Because I think that the podcast benefits us mm. in in obvious ways. Um, I mentioned this in what I wrote. Um, I've had instances where I have opportunities, clearly because I have a podcast, you know, so like doing a like a session at a symposium or something like that. Um, but also like obviously these more subtle ways where. People might recognize me when they might otherwise not know who I was, and um, yeah, so we have all of these perks. And I think the the flip side of that is that you take a risk when you speak very publicly, <laughs> um, and maybe people won't like what you have to say, and they'll think that what you have to say is really bad and harmful. And that's like, um, yeah, that responsibility that we have, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's but it must be really scary too because. Because you can't respond, right? Like you're putting it out there, and then people listen to it, and and then they might mis misconstrue what you said, you know. And I, I do think to some extent that happened, you know, in, in this particular case with you all. Yes, I mean, hopefully, you know, in cases where things are a bit more high stake, like a hiring decision or something like that, that hopefully people give you a chance to to elaborate on what you said or explain what you said. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I guess we won't fully know exactly to what extent that happened in this case. Um, okay, Jenny, is there anything else about the letter that you want to talk about before we move on to our next topic? Yeah, I think um, I think it would be, you know, I, I kind of talked about it, it slipped into it a little bit already at the beginning, but I did think that um, your second point and what you wrote about the students and how, um, you know, one response was that the students were kind of taken or their petition was taken too seriously um and yeah i wanted to talk a little bit more about this like what i said already that i feel like um in a way you know we are kind of like underestimating students and i think that's a general issue um and maybe it's because we we call them students you know like in in germany and the netherlands i know and probably other countries too they're not called students um, they're like what are they called? Well, in in Germany, they're called Doktoranden, so it just means basically a person who is pursuing a PhD. Um, okay. So it's the word student is not at all in there. I don't know what it's called in, in the Netherlands, but they're seen more as colleagues there. Um, you know, so so people are seen more as colleagues instead of students, and so the, I feel like that alone, you know, maybe puts us sometimes in a position as professors to be like, oh, these are my students. So in a way, we want to protect them, which I felt when I was 
looking at the responses quite a bit. Um, you know, I felt really protective of these students. I was like, oh no, these poor students and they're going to get backlash and all that. And I still do feel like that. But then on the other hand, I, I felt like, but, but why are we, why shouldn't we take their petition really seriously? And um, because they are uh, adults and, you know, we should also take children's experiences and, and petitions seriously. But, you know, I mean, it's kind of infantilizing a little bit, these positions and, um, yeah, I mean, one reaction to the the students was, oh, this must have been like a peer pressure situation or um, there must have been people who were like signing because they didn't think about this carefully or um, signing just because their friends were signing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think to a degree when we're talking about petitions, um, some of that always happens, right? I think people often sign petitions without sort of like knowing every single fact. Right. Um, and then also, I mean, this, from from like a social influence perspective, trying to get people to respond to a group email is <laughs> shockingly hard in my experience. Um, so I, I think people responded to this petition because they felt strongly about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that we should pay attention to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I agree that, I mean, I don't know exactly how things ended up, um, th- this petition ended up online with people's names on it um but that kind of thing should never happen and i think the students were um really i don't think they were signing up for that but i think they were really brave to write the petition in the first place um and if that happened at ua i would be um i would be proud of our students for doing that yeah 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 i would also be proud um and i don't think it would happen everywhere um like this so i was actually quite impressed by the collective action <laughs> that they did. Um, yeah. And and I also, you know, I agree with you what, what you said in terms of um, they probably felt strongly about it because yeah, maybe they didn't read all the details and, you know, um, but it shows that they care about the issue. And that brings us back to when we can consider these kinds of viewpoints or like DI related, mm-hmm. Um, thinks in hiring uh, decisions and, and to what extent um, I think that speaks towards that we should because these students really seem to care um, even mm-hmm. if, if maybe in this particular case they might have been wrong or not you know I don't I'm not the one to judge here but it shows the priority and I think for a department to listen to that need in their students is, is a good thing yeah Okay, is this a good time, Jenny, for us to take a break and get another beer? Yeah, that sounds good to me. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence in restless dreams i walked alone welcome back this is the part of the show where i tell you how to contact us we're on twitter at four beers pod where you can at mention or dm us 
If you do that, I very well might miss it, but Yoel will catch it. If you'd like to email us, our email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Finally, our website, fourbeers.com. You can find all of our episodes here, uh, and you can also send us a message here if you'd like. Uh, Also, we always appreciate when people take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. This helps other people find us, um, and we also love hearing what you all have to say about the show. Um, Okay, Uh, we're back. Um, Jenny, are you switching to a new beer or are you continuing to drink the same beer? I'm unfortunately continuing to drink the same beer, I think, because this, as I said, the beer is warm, so it doesn't go down as uh, smoothly and quickly as... (laughs) Yeah, you kind of have to nurse a warm beer, I guess. Exactly. (laughs) Um, I have no excuse, but I'm still drinking the same beer. Okay. I'm sorry I'm Um, failing here on the two beer, two psychologists, four beer. I think it's, thing. it's been a quite a long time since Yoel and I have both had two beers on the show, so we're pretty we're failing our our guiding premise pretty consistently. Right. Okay. Um, so for this next part of the episode, um, we wanted to bring in a paper that's kind of related to some of the things we've been talking about, um, and this was a paper that was uh, suggested to be by a longtime friend of Jenny's, and a friend of mine too, but closer friend of Jenny's, um, Ruth Dittleben, um, and the paper is called Conversational Silencing of Racism in Psychological Science Toward Decolonization in Practice, and it was written by uh, Kevin Durheim. So just to sort of quickly summarize, um, in the abstract, Durheim says that, quote, white supremacy is maintained by conversational silencing, in which the focus on doing good psychology systematically draws attention away from the realities of racism and the operation of power. In the article, he goes on to argue that our field's focus on stereotyping, prejudice, and discrimination acts um, as something like a moral credentialing effect, um, allowing us to see ourselves as progressive, um, but to meanwhile ignore other ways in which we perpetuate white privilege. any sort of initial reactions um, overall to this paper, Jenny? Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting paper. Um, I had no idea um, about what conversational silencing was before. Yeah, I me neither. Reading it. <laughs> I don't know if now I'm all the listeners are just like, oh my god, these people. Um, <laughs> we've been talking about this forever. But no, uh, I have never heard about this. And I thought the idea was really interesting, actually. I mean, it seems like. Um, something that I will now spot everywhere, you know, um, where we talk about certain things, but somehow it feels like we're not really tackling the issue. Um, I think that um, that was really interesting. And I was actually surprised with, with the examples when where this happens. I mean, these are things that I s- totally subscribe to. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I guess in in a way it's sort of like a... If, if psychology were to write its own um, diversity statement, I feel like <laughs> psychology would say, well, look, we have this weird movement and we do all of this research on stereotyping and implicit prejudice. Um, and we have, you know, this research on how to reduce prejudice, you know, these like mechanisms for prejudice reduction. Um, and I think what his point is, is that um, I guess all of these to some degree uh, have really big blind spots. Um, and in some cases, we're sort of like, there's an elephant in the room when it comes to each of these topics. 
yeah, maybe in some ways we miss the deeper point mm-hmm. um, or we fail to acknowledge some of the sort of bigger problems, um, even though we have these these sort of nice sounding uh, credentials. Yeah. Um, so like you mentioned the stuff about um, making the, the weird movement, right? So the this movement to make um, psychology participants less weird and what WEIRD stands for, WEIRD is an acronym and it stands for uh, Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic um, Populations, right? And so um, when this acronym first came on the scene, uh, this was an accusation leveled at psychologists uh, for having really undiverse participant pools. Um, And if you're like me, you often look at that acronym and you mistakenly think that the W stands for white, but it doesn't. Um, so the acronym, one of the, one of the points that Duran makes is that this acronym sort of like um, amazingly ignores race. Um, and I think maybe deliberately it ignores race. Um, I mean, you would think if someone, they, the, I'm sure they put a lot of thought into their acronym. Probably. Yeah, and they probably considered white. <laughs> That must have happened, right? Hopefully. I mean, that might be disturbing if not, but yeah. <laughs> it's kind of disturbing either way. Yeah. Um, but I think, I guess what um, Darm is trying to say is, is that in our focus on uh, collecting samples that go beyond this like very, very narrow category, we first of all don't explicitly grapple with race. Um, and also even some of the ways that that acronym is used to distinguish between some cultures and not others, or some populations and not others, reveals already a Western bias, right? So the idea that we're much more educated and democratic over here in America compared to these other countries maybe already reveals um, some degree of bias. And I think his other accusation is sort of that um, many of the people who who have sort of spearheaded this movement and this work um, fall within the same umbrella. And so they are benefiting again. Now we're applauding people to, you know, do work towards this, and that might give them prestige, and this might give them funding and um, and positions. But it's again the same people um, who are leading it. And he, I think, he talks about where are all these non-weird people, um, and they are sort of like in the at all of the papers. They're not the first authors or the prestigious last author position, I guess, probably also not. And um, what I found also really interesting was the statement about how the the sort of thought of someone being non-weird um, and, and talking about the non-weirds, um, who weirdos, mm-hmm. um, is dehumanizing. <laughs> you know, he talks about how, um, yeah, like these, um, you know, researchers at their non-democratic, um, who would never consider themselves uneducated or sort of like similar to what you, like the flip side of what you just said. Like they, they wouldn't consider themselves uneducated and they probably, I mean, some countries, yes, but in general, they would probably also not even agree on the non-democratic and um, all these kind of things. And, and so they're sitting there in their non-weird institutions with their non-weird students and it's just an othering that they don't subscribe to. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that this, like the other things that we'll talk about, is 
I mean, psychology needed to address these issues, right? So, so before people were talking about weird populations, um, it was just psychology was just totally swamped with these uh, undergraduate psychology students from American universities as their participants, um, and I think it's great that we're moving away from that. Um, but I, I guess like an underlying position that Durham seems to take in his paper is that. We act like we've accomplished so much when it comes to DEI or like mm-hmm. the the research that we do that feels connected to that. Um, but actually, it's sort of like, in some cases, a bit superficial or maybe baby steps would be the right way to describe that. And for me, it was really interesting, like how he applied that analysis to the work on um, stereotyping and prejudice, mm-hmm. uh, because I feel like that is sometimes. Um, it's an accusation that some psychologists make against our field that is supposed to be evidence of this like liberal bias that we have. Okay, we have this whole subfield on um, prejudice and stereotyping and discrimination. Um, I don't know where is the literature on conservative values or something. I don't mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. Um, but his his point is that like the, this work is also very inadequate and um, sometimes ignores. Uh, what he describes as the like reality um, of racism. So one way he does this is he talks about uh, implicit prejudice, right? And so implicit prejudice is a really generous concept, I think, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, we know that everybody has good intentions and everybody loves everybody, but we just have these darn associations in our unconscious brains that sometimes right. like make us you know, do unfair things. And if we can just like learn about this and acknowledge it. And, you know, I think rhetorically that's really useful. Um, but yeah, one, one thing that I think Durham is, Durham is saying is that, first of all, there's lots of explicit racism still out there. Um, not all of it is implicit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and second of all, that that sort of focus suggests that we just need to sort of um, adjust our associations or like learn new associations, um, but it ignores the more systemic issues that are happening that are going to regenerate these stereotypes and prejudices every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it really kind of like reflects um, who started this kind of you know the subfield. Um, when you look, I mean, it's not very many. Um, people of color initially I mean now Mm -hmm. there are a lot of people um, of color um, and and also um, involved in this in these endeavors but at the beginning when kind of like the agenda was set you know not so Mm -hmm. much and I I do think that or you know and you know even if you know that you should be talking about more blatant forms of racism and maybe about the structural inequalities and, and the inconvenient topics. That's not what's going to give you grant funding if, if all the people who are judging your proposals are white. Um, so I don't know what the pressures were and how aware people were when they kind of set the agenda of, of um, the kind of stuff that we do as a field initially. Um, but I do think that it it's convenient, right? And that's what he's getting at, that you know, I feel like, um, so when he talks about um, conversational silencing, it's it's a collaboration, he says, right? Like people, it, it's not completely unintentional. Uh, it might not mm-hmm. be explicit to pe- everyone um, who's participating in this, but it, it serves 
um, the status quo um, and it serves the people in power and, and so yeah I mean it's nice to think that you are just like have this automatic bias and now you can like kind of work on it by doing, doing a diversity training and maybe doing perspective taking intervention for five minutes and then you're good um, right yeah <laughs> <laughs> and I've also have done this kind of research so it's unfortunate in that regard <laughs> yeah right 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 yeah I mean all I mean You've done this research. I mean, I haven't done that research, so I feel like that makes me even more more implicated. Like I'm not, I'm not even. <laughs> You're not even pretending. <laughs> ticking off one of the boxes. Um, yeah, I also like. Uh, it was fun for me to see um, in his work uh, references to our another friend of ours, Jess Remedios, mm-hmm. um, and Maria Gure's work, um, where they talk about white centering. Um, and they talk about how um, whiteness reduces the real-world impact of um, psychological research. So for me, it was really—I don't know—it was cool to see that um, to yeah. see that that connection to to Jess's work. It was really cool. Um, I saw her give a talk about this paper uh-huh. at SPSP, uh-huh. uh, the last SPSP, and it was really good. Um, so shout out to her very good um and then um it inspired me to to really think about remember i was i was like yeah totally on board and then i thought but how how you know and, and that was kind of like also what i felt uh yeah so that that was what i felt when i was reading this paper as well like how can how can we do better and um um i mean one paper can't do everything mm-hmm. um you know, Durham did a good job <laughs> raising these issues, and now, but I now feel like, wow, okay. Um, and and you, know, part of it might be that I'm always still thinking in this framework of that we are operating in, uh, within uh, right now, and mm-hmm. um, you know, he's citing some really interesting work. Um, so I dove into that paper a little bit as well by you know, Granska and Cole, um, 2021. Um, and so I dove into this a little bit and, um, and they make this point of how in order to bring about the change that we need, small changes within the general framework are just not going to cut it. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like asking for a whole revolution. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that that might be a reason for um, me sometimes being stuck and thinking about how can we even bring in all these people and how can we do this and how can we focus on these structural things when we have psychologists and we're always focusing on the individual and you know and then mm-hmm. um and all these kind of things and um i think we are actually at a at a point where maybe we have an opportunity because we're going anyways through like a lot of transition as a field um with the open science movement and stuff like this so I think mm-hmm. this might be like an, our opportunity to make some really drastic changes and not just to be like, oh, now I'm going to do like this little tweak here and there. Yeah, it's funny, like thinking back to the initial stages of the open science movement. I mean, I think there are people who were part of that movement who it's like the would feel like some of the changes that have happened have been like total overhauls or like at least that, that that's what people were calling for, mm-hmm. right? Like. Mm-hmm you know, a totally different way of doing research, you know, but yeah, you're always blind to some of the structures that you're part of. Right. And so, you know, you come up with a concept like pre-registration and, you know, it's a, in some ways a revolutionary way of thinking about writing papers. Right. But 
it also makes all of these assumptions about the kind of work that you do um, right. and the kind of framework you're using. And yeah, I mean, I guess that's the sort of sad reality of, of sometimes thinking of these like revolutionary ideas is like, yeah, to someone they're going to be really unrevolutionary. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Or and from some perspective, they're just going to totally like miss the point or something. Yeah. And I think this paper basically calls for, well, that's why we need these people there. You know, we need to have everyone there participating in the, in the revolution. And, you know, when you think about revolutions, it's never, they never happened by, like the people in power and the people of privilege, then it, w- it wouldn't be called revolution then. So it needs to be right. the people who are not in positions of power who do this. Okay, so Durham made one other point, which I, I wanted to talk to you be, or talk about because um, this one really resonated with me. Um, and that is that he, he argued that the way that we talk about um, the potential for social change um, is very much focused on individuals. And you already mentioned this, right? Like as psychologists, we're always focusing on mm-hmm. individuals. Um, so like part of his point here is that a lot of these problems are systemic. And so we're talking about, you know, giving someone an implicit bias intervention that's not addressing any of the systemic stuff. Um, but he also talked about these like ways of talking in, in psychology, maybe these like conversational silencing habits that we have, um, where first of all, like there is a tendency to treat prejudice as natural. And this, Jenny, is something that you and I have talked a lot about, right? This mm-hmm. uh, narrative that uh, prejudice is ingrained, it's inevitable, it's biological, it's just like part of our human psychology. And that is absolutely something that I think is. Um, commonly believed and taught in social psychology and really like limits our imagination when it comes to imagining how the world could be different right Mm -hmm. yeah and then and then he also says that our solutions tend to focus on creating harmony where maybe that harmony might not be sort of very justified right so like let's just all get along even though actually you know things are not yet fair or not yet equal Right. Um, and there's this interesting work showing that these kind of things like backfire sometimes, you know, this sort of like intergroup contact, for example, mm-hmm. in, under certain com- conditions, uh, undermining collective action. So then sort of like we and, and similarly with the individual focus, right, um, to putting the blame on the individual um, in a way for, for these mm-hmm. huge systemic historically grounded issues um it's kind of i mean it cannot work really right like what are we going to do do therapy with all everyone and and yeah so it really reminded me of of this kind of like this individual focus um the focus on the, on the individual on on how the the fossil fuel industry is sort of like you know promoted this sort of personal responsibility view on climate change and we need to do our recycling and we need to maybe not you know drive our car so much or something like this and and that kind of refocuses our efforts and everyone is just like in their little world trying to fix themselves when really they should start their revolution 
and uh -huh. try to, you know, um, get those fossil fuel people, uh, hold, hold them accountable. Um, he said something at the end of the article that I kind of wanted to pose to you as summary question or something like that. So he says, um, if psychology is going to become a liberation psychology that it includes excluded peoples and realities, um, it will have to let go of many things that were once thought to be good psychology. And I guess I was just curious, what do you think needs to change about what we think of as good psychology? We, we know so little as a field, I think, at this mm -hmm. point, um, because we have been doing it wrong. So now we have to get into sort of like the messiness of it. Of, of the human experience a little bit more, right? Like we need to really go and like see what are all these different cultural influences and um, experiences of oppression and what does that do? And the, you know, um, what are the context factors and how do these structures aff affect us uh, in all sorts of probably very surprising ways that we don't even consider. Um, mm -hmm. And for that, we don't have the theories. We don't have the established established methods and and the like we kind of have to start sort of like from not from scratch but like go way back when we were like a little mini psych science you know uh -huh. um and and i think that it's kind of counter to what we're trying to get to right now because we're trying to fix ourselves um because we were pretending that we were doing the good science and we didn't really and now we're trying to really do this but I think there needs to be room for this other endeavor as well, to some extent. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was sort of thinking along similar lines. Like, I think that um, I really was, I think, taught quantitative work was the sort of gold standard of psychology. Um, and I think that that needs to change about our definition of good psychology. Like, we, we need to make so much more room for other ways of of learning about people, more qualitative work, other methodologies maybe that I haven't even thought of. Um, yeah, because the, <laughs> this like this quantitative approach that we've been taking has got a lot of problems, a lot of holes. Mm -hmm. I hear you. But what am I going to do? I'm trying to study the brain. <laughs> <laughs> you can still do quantitative stuff. <laughs> maybe you should just, you know, Instead of putting a number on things, you should just put more pictures instead. <laughs> Great. <laughs> like, if you can see here. <laughs> well, um, is there anything else that you think we should touch on from this article or from anything? No, I think uh, I'm good. All right. Well, I guess we'll wrap up there then. Okay. Awesome. Um, Thank you so much, Jenny, for coming on with me. Um, and thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time.